What does it take to create something that never existed before? What does it take to challenge the status quo? What does it take to change the world? This is The Swell Podcast. We're passionate about story, experience, and designing culture, but ultimately how an idea swells into a movement. Take a journey with us as we seek the answers to those three questions through the stories of thought leaders, world builders, game changers, disruptors, and other pleasantly rebellious humans who've ventured out into the unknown on a personal journey to do something novel, innovative, creative, or disruptive. In today's episode, we chat with Brendan Dawes, a UK-based artist who's exploring the aesthetics of form and code. We dive into his creative process, his installations at MoMA and Sundance, and how he elicits emotional impact and curiosity as he turns data into art. Be sure to like and subscribe to the podcast, sign up to our newsletter at theswellpod.com, and get in on the conversation through all of the major socials at The Swell Pod. Our first season is made in partnership with Kiln. Kiln provides flex office space solutions for teams and individuals. Their all-inclusive set of amenities helps startups, creatives, and entrepreneurs alike get work done. Learn more about Kiln at kiln.co. Thanks for tuning in. We hope you enjoy. Hello, uh, Brendan. How are you? I'm very well, Spencer. Uh, I'm here in the UK. It's very sunny at the minute, which is good. Um, but it's yeah, it's lovely to see you. Absolutely. Uh, it's been, uh, yeah, we, we, I miss the UK. Of course, I'm in the US and it's just great to hear your, your voice. And what I wanted to say is, you know, the first time I met you, you told me a story about your mum, um, actually, about you explaining to her about what you do. Um, oh, could yeah. you tell, could you remind us like what that story is and, and also, yeah, what do you do? Yeah, sure. Well, I guess like I, I think probably all of us who work in this kind of industry, it, you know, this kind of anything tech based is always difficult to explain to a, a certain generation sometimes who haven't grown up with that technology. And uh, yeah, my mom, you know, she loves me unconditionally, et cetera, et cetera. Um, she's even been to some of my gallery shows and stuff. She thought it was all lovely. You know, but um, she still didn't really understand what I did. So I thought I would draw her a diagram because I'm a visual kind of person, right? So I drew this this diagram uh, very much. There's a fa very famous Charles and Ray Eames diagram that is a very similar thing, but it was kind of like a, a bit Venn diagram-like and it had art and design and technology and where they coalesced, it created this weird shape. And I said, See, mom, what I do, I, I get art and design and technology and, and it's about putting those things together and it creates this like shape and that's kind of what I do. And she looked at it and then looked at me and then she said, oh, I told my hairdresser you invented Google Maps. <laughs> so, and, and I just went, close enough. So, you know, it's, <laughs> um, yeah, it's, and I realised, you know, my diagram was all kind of, you know, a bit arty, arty type thing and um but um yeah it's always it is truth be told it is always quite difficult to explain to people and I just say you know look at the work that's that's what I do I'm not really too concerned with you know having a, a business card with my you know something on it 
Um, but you know, I, originally, I guess I was a designer, graphic designer. Um, but these days, you know, no one asks me to design anything. Um, no one's ever comes to me and say, design a logo, design a brand or whatever. Uh, I make artwork for people, for brands um, and, and myself. So, you know, I, I've got work in the MoMA permanent collection. So, I, you know, I feel I can say I am an artist, even though I, I do have problems <laughs> with that term being English and, you know, self-deprecating and everything. It's always a bit of a difficult one. But that is, I, tend, I think I've learned to embrace it now because that is what I do. Well, it's, it's, it's interesting. Cause like when I, when I, even, even my wife has a, has a problem really understanding what it is that I do. Like whenever somebody asks her what I do, she's like, well, he just sits at the computer. Like that's really just what he does. Yeah. Um, but what's interesting is like, if you look at your website, you know, it, it under, underneath your name, it says the aesthetics of form and code. And, yeah. and, and I, I know from my perspective, it's I'm still on a journey of figuring out what it is that I do. And I'm, I'm interested in like, how long was that journey for you to be able to put that line under your name of the aesthetics of form and code? Yeah. Um, probably about 24 years, you know, that's the length of time I've been going because I've always kind of changed, changed it. And it was only in the last year that I changed it to that term, which I thought, thought kind of sums me up really about what I do It is. You know, I, I use a lot of code, but it's also about the forms that I make. And ultimately, it's about beauty and aesthetics. That's why I'm doing this stuff. And that's why people come to me. Um, so it seemed to sum it up quite well. Um, but yeah, it's taken years to, to get to a place where I'm happy with it. But if I said that, if I met a relative and, I, and they asked me and I said that, <laughs> still being on the wiser. So let's not, you know, let's be serious here. But yeah. Um, yeah, it's. I think it's the nearest thing I've got to explaining explaining what I do or, or you know how I do things at least. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. What about and, you? How do you, you know, what? How do you explain what you do? Well, usually it's it's it at least takes me five minutes to ramble on some things that I've done in the past, and 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 eventually I get to some 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 meaning there. But it's 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 usually a mixture of like, well, I do this and I do this and I do this, and sometimes that means I'm I'm solving this problem, or sometimes that means I'm solving this problem. But it's yeah. it's very difficult, and and it's interesting. I think you know that what when you start to think about like, I think really it's interesting when you think about what, what an artist does. And I think sometimes what, you know, what, what you might do or, or when I relate it to other, other artists is, is it's the idea of communicating an emotion or, or, or solving yeah. a problem. And, and, and oftentimes those solutions can be drastically different than, than what you imagine. And I think, you know, that flexibility of an artist is always probably what makes it so difficult to, you know, because you're also so interested in exploring so many different areas. And, and yeah. I, I, I saw your talk at Pluralsight um, from 2018. And yeah. I mean, I laughed about halfway through, like almost the entire way through that. But um, you actually, you mentioned something that was really interesting to me um, about your data, uh, you, data visualizers and, yeah. and how you have vast interest, various diff different interests yeah. and stuff like that. And, and I, I, I wonder if you'd be interested in, in talking about like, you know, that, that kind that kind of, I guess, dynamic, like, are you okay, like talking with other data visualizers versus going out and exploring and mm -hmm. being interested in various different things? Yeah. Well, I, yeah, I'm not, 
I know, I know data visualizing people who are yeah. amazing and really, they really go deep into it. They know it as a science. That's not what I do. My yeah. brain does not work like that. Um, and it also, it doesn't really interest me because I'm not, I'm not looking at data viz blogs. I'm not, I haven't got loads of books on data viz. Um, you know, it's, it's not what makes me tick. And I have to recognize that. What I am interested in is, as you mentioned, you know, trying to communicate an emotion or tell a story or, you know, and, and yes, sometimes data is, is involved in that quite a lot of times. Um, but I'm never going to make some kind of great data viz piece that you can pour over for, you know, years. You know, it's, it's not how my brain works. It's, and it also doesn't interest me. So, yeah, I don't really have any dealings with the data viz community, even though I've been in lots of books and won awards for that kind of stuff. Fine. But it's not it's not my, you know, it just doesn't make my, it doesn't float my boat. Yeah, I'm interested in film and narrative um, and composition. Uh, those are the things that make me excited, make my heart beat a bit faster. You know, I, I just don't look at other data viz, you know. Yeah. Well, it's, the emotion thing is interesting because I, 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 Spencer shared with me that you've had people look at your work and, and start crying. Is that is that yeah. true? Yeah, no, I've had... When I've shown like the art of cybersecurity thing at, at big conferences, like there was one at the Barbican in London last October, and some of the comments was like they said they had an emotional response to it, like they said I had goosebumps, mm. or some people were like almost brought to tears. And I'm thinking it's data, you know, it's like <laughs> which is crazy, right? So, um, but I think to me that's a lesson in doesn't matter, excuse me, doesn't matter what it is, it, um, if you do it in the right way, it can communicate something emotionally. And that piece is, you know, combined with the music, the, the graphics, the way it flows, there's something touches you about it. I can't tell you what that is. You know, I didn't, I didn't press a certain button and go, all right, add the humanness now. You know, it, just, <laughs> it doesn't, this is just how I, I make stuff, you know. So, but I think often in work, it's that X, that kind of X factor that you're looking for. You know, the, it's, I think Hendrix described, you know, it's not about playing the notes, it's about the spaces in between. That is what anyone can learn how to play notes, but it's the gaps you leave in between that make it emotional. And so I'm trying to find those gaps in between the data and, you know, and that's, and hopefully that manifests in the work to get that kind of reaction from people. Yeah. Well, so I was, I was, I was looking at your website and one of the first one, one of the first uh, pieces that I, that I looked at was one of the commissions from uh, trend micro, yeah. uh, which was uh, specifically one about the, it was, it was, of course, a representation of the threats and a representation of the system around it, and then the creativity that flowed out from yeah, yeah. that, or because it was protected by that, by that yeah. system. And, and, and that, I know that's what I felt, at least. And when I thought about, it's interesting, because you mentioned, like, the notes and the space in between, yeah. you know, I think a lot of times, you know, you have your objective truth, which is the data and the fact. And, and, and what's so interesting about what I got from that was this overwhelming feeling of, 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 
of safety to be creative, to be creatively curious. And, and that's so powerful. And it, it was a singular message rather than, rather than, again, as you mentioned, all those individual notes, you created yeah. like a harmony with that piece. And it was, it was really beautiful. Oh, oh, thank you. Yeah, no, that was, I think that was key with that work was breaking it down into those three things, components. I'm going to sneeze. <laughs> Bless you. Bless you. Remember, kids, don't sneeze into your hands like I just did. Right. So, um, yeah, but uh, I think I've got a bit of hay fever today. Um, well, yeah, the system, the threats, and the creativity was the the core things, you know. So, because ultimately, like you said, Josh, it was like, why, why are we even doing this stuff? It's to so is so. Why are we putting our systems? And protecting them so we can be creative. Do you think that's the root of a lot of a lot of the work? If there was a, a theme across a lot of the work that you, that you do, is is it is an emotional explanation of of, of the why uh, some certain things exist or certain things happen? Is that would I you say that's so. true? I think so. In quite a lot of it, yeah, I would imagine. Um, I think um, I like I like though too. It's the difference between design and art, right? Yeah. Design is about answers and art is about questions. Yeah. And art for me is about leaving people with questions. I'm not here to give people answers. It's someone described it once to me as the difference between Spielberg, who I love, and, and Kubrick. If you watch a Kubrick movie, there's just loads of questions at the end where Spielberg kind of wraps it up and, you know, um, and I think it was an important difference so that's and that again that's what interests me the questions mm. i'm not here to give people answers well and where i am trying to obviously i'm trying to communicate a narrative or a story great but i also want it to if i can leave people with some more questions then great yeah i, I I'm, I'm sorry i'm asking you a lot of questions spencer but I, I i think that there's a really interesting transition to your work that was in moma right and yeah and i'd love to get your thoughts on that like as far as what was the what was the reception from that because so just a little bit of context um it was vertigo is that right hitchcock's yeah, yeah. vertigo yeah and, and you can you can even explain it if you if you want um we because I, yeah. I thought i looked at that and i was so i i, I studied film specifically in college mm -hmm. and i saw that and i was like it's my initial reaction was I loved seeing the transition from different colors where it was fading into certain colors and yeah. fading out to certain colors. But then at certain points, there was a really harsh juxtaposition between a darkness and a lightness. And yeah. there were some really interesting things and moments within that. But I don't know. Yeah. Would you mind just talking yeah, sure. about that piece? So I did that in, I think it was 2004. And it was just a self-initiated, you know, thing. Um, and so it, it takes, it samples a frame every second and each row is one minute of film time and it does the entire film. And they're like little thumbnails as you've seen, right? And it does that for the entire film. So you're left with a sheet of, of images that is the film and you can see the color changes and that kind of stuff. So with verticals, it's interesting because um, there's a red section and a green section and you can really see that when you see it, you know, you stand back from it. Um, yeah, and, and it's one of those things, I, I, that was just part of an iterative process where I was playing around at the time with, at the time it wasn't even MPEGs, it was DVD footage that I was, you know, hooked up to the computer. 
and uh, I was bringing these frames in. What can I do with them? And and this thing I called Cinema Redux was one of the things at the end. Um, so, so yeah, that's why um, it is what it is. And I did that in 2004 and I put it on the internet, internet being this amazing thing. People started to pick up on it. Um, I think The Guardian wrote about it like probably a year later or something. And then midway through 2007, I get an email and it's from MoMA and uh, saying that they're putting this exhibition on in 2008. I think they've been closed for a while. So this was one of the first major exhibitions for the opening. It's called Design in the Elastic Mind. Um, and they wanted me to, you know, could, could they feature the work? And I think originally they were gonna do like two A2 size prints, you know, still would have been amazing. Uh, in the end, they did it 30 feet wide, uh, high. So it's like entire wall. Uh, me and my wife um, went out to New York and went to the opening party. There was that many people there. You just couldn't get near the work. It was like, it was like 3000 people at the opening. You know, there was lots of amazing exhibitions and work. And for me, who someone who I, you know, I failed art at school. You know, I have zero qualifications. So uh, to be in MoMA and then uh, what happened after I got back a few months later, after the exhibition had finished, they then wrote to me and said, um, we'd like it in the permanent collection. And so you just gift it to them, you know, and it's been in three exhibitions since then. Um, and, it, and then it was in this other thing called Big Bang Data, which has nothing to do with MoMA, but that was in 13 cities across the world. Uh, so I, I've got to confess that code took me about an hour. <laughs> uh, on a Saturday afternoon you be so you know and it's one of those things it's not about the complexity of the code it's about what it is you yeah know, no one cares about how complex it is or how simple it is and it's really simple but no one had really done that before so yeah well, you, I mean, and you hear stories of like really popular songs being created in, in 15 minutes, right? So, yeah, I, yeah. yeah in, an hour or, or, or 10,000 hours, you know, the work yeah. stands up. Well, I think I, I saw an interview with Sting once, you know, from the police. And he said, I wrote um, Every Breath You Take in half an hour in when he was in the Caribbean or something. And he said, yeah, it paid for my house. <laughs> <laughs> That's quite good. <laughs> I'm well interested. Thirty minutes. Yeah, that's that's brilliant. I love I love that story about just you, you know, not you know, your art lesson, right? And your art teacher. Did you? I'm interested. Did you invite him to the uh, exhibition? <laughs> no, because it was years later, and I'd lost touch. Um, <laughs> yeah. And I, to be honest, I wanted to ring them up and laugh down the phone, but no. <laughs> no, it would have been cool if if I'd had a an art, you know, I had that kind of relationship. But this was I didn't go to college or anything, so. This was just at high school, right? So I didn't really know the teacher that well or, you know, so I lost touch once I left school. Yeah, I love that. What um, what questions did that particular piece kind of, do you think, triggered in people's minds? I mean, Josh, you mentioned, I mean, you, what, I'm interested also what you thought, Josh, but yeah, Brendan. Um, I think... I know when John Walters wrote about it, he was the editor of I, but he was writing for The Guardian at the time. And he said that uh, film students would be able to postulate 
new ideas about film film and I thought wow that that's pretty cool um you know and obviously I'm not thinking of that when I'm doing it you know when I'm creating the work I just thought it was kind of cool right but that's what I love you put the work out there and people bring their own ideas into it or new theories or and that's why I love that you create this system but then people can then play around with it so so for me yeah it was uh it was just the fact that people could view it in different ways, especially when it's really large. They can they view it from afar, and it's one thing because it's you're seeing it as a a giant compilation. But then, and you think, oh, what's that? And then you get really close. And I've got pictures of people doing this, by the way. Um, and they they're like looking at each individual frame, and then they realize, oh wow, this is a film, you know. And then they recognize the film. So it's, I like this idea of layers for work. You know, you can view it in one way, you can view it in another. Depends how close you are, that kind of thing. Yeah, I love that. I mean, I love the fact that it's the unknown, something that inspired you, but also people don't know necessarily what they're going to find until they, you know, see it from different perspectives. Um, yeah. I, can, I can sense that you're, I mean, you know what you love and what you don't, right? Uh, to the point, that you talked about earlier um where did it all begin like you, you know you're, you're in your art lesson um and then now you're you, you know you're, you're you're in this incredible um place and you know looking at your your work like w- at what point did you start to discover that this is this is your path well I'd, that's a good question i I don't know if I ever let it, it didn't go to my head. Obviously on, on a CV, it's like a major deal. Um, but I was just moving on to the next thing. You know, I probably could have made a whole career just making loads of them, you know, that that would be it, you know. Um, but that didn't really interest me. I wanted to do new things. So um, yeah, it gave me some kind of validation because the whole, you know, imposter syndrome thing, you know, is still, you know, it's that I'm still dealing with that. Um, but I, yeah, I just didn't get complacent about it. It was obviously an amazing time to to go out there and and see it, and then you know all the other exhibitions it was in. Um, yeah. So yeah, it was it was just something I kind of went, okay, that that was nice. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, what's and, next? And just take me back for a moment though. So what what? I mean, this was your, you know, at some point you were doing, you said you were doing kind of graphic artist and you were doing things like that. At what point were you starting to want to look at data and turn that into art? Um, Well, you could argue that Cinema Redux is is data because it's, I haven't even interpreted the data. It's data at the rawest form. I think someone wrote a thesis about, that particular thing that was quite unusual in that way. Um, I can't remember that I did a I did a big piece for EE which used like six million data points and that was hugely successful as a campaign for them. They're a big mobile, you know, uh, comms company, to, uh, mobile phone company uh, over here. Um, so yeah, I guess it was that. I, I don't. I think it. I never really made the conscious decision to go, I'm going to be a data person now. To me, it was just a material. It was just another material to work with. That's what data was to me. 
and continues to be. Um, and I just, to me, it was all digital bits and, you know, ones and zeros. Um, so I just saw it like that. Yeah, love it. Um, Josh, I'm sure you've got lots of other questions, but uh, let me just ask you what, um, I kind of want to understand, what's your favorite project that you've worked on, right? The fa your favorite piece of work and, and kind of why? Um, but I'm kind of try also trying to understand what, what, why it means so much to you, the work you do. Because I, 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 I love the work, but, and I can tell that you absolutely, it means, means a lot. Um, there was one with Airbnb, which you might have seen, which was a physical, you know, this, so let's you know, talk about some of the other stuff I do. But a physical installation uh, it was done quite quickly. That was in at the Sundance Film Festival. But again, that came off the back of um, some work I'd done myself. I did, a, I did this little machine that was called the happiness machine. And I made it just for me as, a, as an experiment. And you press the button and it, it went out on the internet and it found people who were talking about being happy. And it printed a receipt of that person and what they said. Um, and it, that just caught fire on the internet. That was just crazy. Uh, and then a few years later, Airbnb had seen it and they were doing um, an installation at the Sundance Film Festival. And um, they came to me and said, look, we love, it's all about neighborhood, our installation. Can we use your happiness machine? I said, well, how about something else? Why don't I make something for you? So I ended up making 12 printers. They were hung from the ceiling. People could text message in stories about their neighborhood and then people could print them out and, and everyone then pinned them up. I think there's pictures on my website so showing, I think there's 5,000 stories that were shared in a week. And you had to be there, it wasn't on the internet, you had to be physically there. So you had this jungle of receipt papers with these stories on. And the amazing thing, Spencer, was that the stories were brilliant. They weren't like, go try the coffee down the road. You know, that's what I would put. These were like amazing stories. Um, so again, I'm always surprised by what people do, you know, and this kind of, you give them something and they, they just run with it and take it and they surprise you. It taught me that, um, you know, not to prejudge people. So um, it's interesting if I was to relate it back to, 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 to my experience, like there's, there's stuff that I, I do for work and then there's stuff that I do for myself. Yeah. And, and I look at the stuff that I do for myself is just as important. Uh, it's where I explore certain things. And, and so you mentioned yeah. the happiness project being at least at the beginning of it was something that you were, you were exploring for yourself. And, and what was it interested? What was it that, that was interesting to you that, that sent you off on this journey? You know, what was that inspiration, but also kind of, you know, there's, there's the, that four part process that you talk to and, and yeah. maybe you can kind of take us from that, that moment of really chaotic mess and inspiration, yeah. you know, and, and the flow of ideas all the way kind of through that, that, that entire yeah. process. Well, I think with the, I, I get the way I, the way I view kind of my personal stuff is they are, that's the way I get work. Mm. Um, so I put these little things out there that hopefully attracts people and go, Ooh, that's quite interesting and nice. Um, so I have that in the back of my mind as well. Um, the happiness machine came about because at the time, and I think obviously it's even worse now is um, people don't, people easily forget that the person on the other side of that Twitter handle is a human being. 
And so I wanted to make a machine that printed out these like moments. And then when you hold things in your hand, like a physical tactile thing, I think it's, it makes it somehow a bit more important or has a bit more gravitas than, you know, uh, holding a screen or whatever. Um, and you know, as you're scrolling through. So that was part of the reason for making it. Um, as for the process, with that one, when you, it's, it's one thing when you, as you know, when you're doing a personal project, you know, it's not mission critical in that the client is going to, it has to be so bulletproof, you know, you might have it in your, if in this case, I had it at home, no one was going to bash into it, no, you know, it's all those kind of things, right, didn't have to worry about it. Uh, what, I, what happens if it fails, you know, it doesn't, who cares? When a client gets involved, obviously, those things have to be sorted. Um, so the technical challenges with that one, and again, well, I like to do things I don't know how to do because I think it's a bit more interesting. So I'd never done text message anything before. I'd never used a text message backend or anything. I told the client that I could do it, you know, and then it was like, you know, as you do, okay, <laughs> it's out now. Um, but I knew there were systems out there. That's the beauty of the internet, isn't it? Um, and you can find all this stuff out. And it turns out it's really, really easy to do text message stuff. Um, so I figured, you know, researched that, found out how to do that, then had to build a back end that they could administer the stories. Originally, they were going to approve them, but in the end, they just let everything come through live, uh, which is very brave of them. But it, as I said, all the stories were really good. Um, so there was that. And then how do you make you know, the, the logistics sometimes like, OK, I made one printer, now I've got to make 12. There's just me, there's no one else here. Um, don't even have any pets. So, you know, it's like, you know, th there's my wife who like will help me you know, any kind of wiring stuff. I was trying to figure out well, with that one, we were trying to figure out how to, because I wanted the cables to be beautiful textile. In fact, I've got some here. Um, you know, these, this is like, you know, beautiful cable. You don't want a horrible plastic cable connected in this machine. It just ruins it, right? All the details, you know, I love all those details. So, you know, we spent one night, how do we get the textile cable in that cable? How do we solder it? Because it was, it was quite hard. So we figured that out. So yeah, it's, there's a lot of stuff like that. And then you realize each printer took a day to 3D print and there's 12 of them. And you're like, okay, didn't, did not factor that into the budget. And, um, but managed to meet the deadline, but because you've got to do it, you can't just hold your hands up and go, oh, sorry you know, screwed up. Um, and the, the, I, I was already using a very good um, system to connect to the Wi-Fi, which was a very high end. You could connect a million objects and it would still work. So, so, and I'd used that right from the beginning. So that was all good. So yeah, and then it was a case of, you know, going to um, Utah, Salt Lake City and, um, uh, oh, just outside there where Sundance is. There's no dancing and there's no sun, by the way. So, <laughs> oh, sometimes, sometimes there's a little. Oh, there is dancing, yeah. But there is, <laughs> yeah. But it, it's snowy. <clears throat> it's snowy and cold. It is not Hollywood, right? So, yeah. And I had really no idea what I was go going going into. So, 
so yeah and then you work with the team to to rig it all and everything and and thankfully it worked you know it it, it was pretty solid but it, again it was it's actually quite simple um on the back end but uh, it did nothing failed you know because i wasn't there the whole week i was only there for, for a few days so after that it was like okay if this fails then i'm gonna have to talk them through it so so yeah there's all those things when a client becomes involved it, it ramps up the seriousness you know and also don't forget it's a brand you know and it, it would make them look bad if this thing failed you know yeah well so it's interesting because if you go back to so there were a couple things you know it's it's obvious it's something that you were you know looking to learn it was something that you'd never done before and and you I think you know the the like the idea of at least behind it right you know that we're not connected enough to maybe the other person or the other story that you might see on Twitter right and mm -hmm. and 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 that's a that's a powerful thing and and I think it resonates with a lot of people and. And, and, and it's interesting to think about like how it, like it caught fire, you know, and do you, do you, do you think that that's an important, those, a few of those elements are important to the idea that it caught fire things like, you know, at, at first, so you were, you were trying to do something that you'd never done before. Yeah. Um, that, that, but also I think the idea of you weren't afraid of failing, which is interesting, right? Because at the time it was just a personal project and, but there's, there's also something to that too. That, that you and your wife which i would love to know more about that as well like i can imagine <laughs> like being up late at night like yeah. hooking wires into your in, in, into it and yeah. like that's an that's that's fascinating and do you do, do you look at that as like you know that is kind of what requires or or when you when you compare that to to how it caught fire and how it became successful do you see those things kind of you know it's it's kind of it, you have to kind of cultivate that environment i guess around you maybe yeah, I think so. I think maybe maybe people see. I well, let's put it this way. Sometimes, have you ever found this where you have a project and middle way through the project is like, you're like, this is awesome. This is oh, it just looks great, and then it goes on and on, and more people get involved, and the end product, the client's happy, and you go, no, it was the sweet spot was in the middle, and I haven't had this really over the last few years, everything's been cool, but I have had those occasions where more people have got involved and, you know, they're worrying maybe, they're thinking about it almost too much. It's like, oh, what, you know, what's someone, someone in marketing has just said, maybe we shouldn't use blue or, you know, I don't know what it is, right? So there's that. I think when you, um, when you're a very small team of one and my occasional wife, you know, for some <laughs> respect, um, you know, it's, it allows you to be very focused on the original idea because even with the Airbnb thing, they just let me do it. They didn't influence me at all. Um, interestingly, I did it again for the same agency in New York and it was terrible. They, mm. they kind of ruined it because they took out some of them. They didn't want a button anymore. They just wanted it to come out times. And I said, You've lost the gift. The gift is you press something, you get a reward. Oh, we don't care about that. So, you know, those kind of like frustrating conversations and you try and explain this is interaction. You know, no, just, we don't want a button. Okay, fine. So, yeah, I think it's, it's much better if you can have a small team, you know, to just focus. Um, I know even at iPhone, you know, Apple, I think Johnny Ives' team is is small, 
you know, which is, you know, crazy when you think about it. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I think that's kind of key. And also, I think you can see in the work, I really wanted to make it. It wasn't, it, I wasn't being asked to make it originally. It was just something I wanted to do because I wanted it. I think I thought it deserved to be into the, in the world. And that's, you know, that's, that's why I made it originally. And I think that's why it resonated with people was, God, this is something very emotional and very human. It's like the other, the, I did one, did a project for a MailChimp and uh, I made six objects, physical objects that um, reinterpreted our relationship with email. And, the, and, and again, that, that just was like, people really took to the, all of them. But the one they really loved was the simplest one and it was a, I said, why can't you have a light switch for your email? And it's on the wall and you come home and you go, I'm done with email for the day, switch it off. And everyone was like, oh my God, why, why do we not have this, right? So, and still no one's really made it. Um, and people keep saying, are you gonna make that? And it's like, oh, it's complicated. Yeah. <laughs> to roll things out at that level is, is hard. Yeah. Um, well, so so yeah it again it was just a simple idea that's all it was and it was just people were like it just resonated with people it's sim it's simple oh sorry josh it's simple but it's 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 just different and i think you know you raise a few things there like the importance of you know we say collaboration is essential but actually the autonomy of a of a kind of an entrepreneurial startup is is that's what really is important sometimes so you can follow um some of those instincts that you you clearly have and but the, the, the just doing things different make people think differently um I, I i love that sorry josh go for it no i was i was i love that too i was just gonna say um if you so for anybody that potentially listens to this right like definitely go and check out the happiness project because what i mean for me what was so interesting and i hope you don't mind if i share this but when i see that it's the, the, this printer is small and and or it looks small at least from what i've seen and yeah, and to me it feels like it's so interesting for, i i i imagine or at least an image of a heart is placed in my mind when I see that. Right. And the fact that you have, like, it's interesting that they asked you to take out that button because yeah. to me, like when I, I mean, it's, it's just this overwhelming feeling of a heart too. And so like the idea of having to touch that heart to, uh, to connect with somebody was so passionate or so, so, so it just, it, it flooded into me. It was, it was so strong, I guess. Oh, um, yeah. Yeah. Well, as you can see, yeah. Well, you know, you take that on board and you can see why I was so frustrated in the, the second time it was done that they said take that button away even though i argued it in a very nice way you know they still wasn't having it but the other thing uh, josh to say as well is um people had done thermal printer things before internet connected printers they'd done it before i did it um and it was interesting when i did the first prototype of that, of that it was at the london design festival before i'd had really the success of it and the guy came up to me and said, but what you've done is really easy. He, like, he, couldn't, he couldn't equate, why are you <laughs> even here? Like, what, you know, he, he was like saying, well, I could have done that. You know, it's like, yeah, but it's, the it's not the technology. It's not the printer. It's what it is. And I think sometimes we, as people who use technology, concentrate too much on the technology what, you know what is the story what are we trying to communicate how is it going to resonate no one cares that it's an internet connected printer who cares 
The other thing as well you say about the smallness of it, and it's a really good point that I didn't mention before. If I had done it as an A4 sheet of paper on a normal printer, it would not be as good because it's not intimate. You know, if I, you know, I've got an envelope here, small, but that is, that is, says something completely different to a bigger envelope, for instance. So all these things come into play. The form factor of it is, it's tiny. So it, it says this is a bit more special. An A4 piece of paper ain't going to cut it. You know, I've just made a fax machine. Who cares? Yeah. Well, so I, I want to ask one more question then, I guess, because I, I think you touched on a, a really important theme of, you know, that I think a lot of artists or a lot of designers, um, even entrepreneurs, I, I think this idea of simplification is, is a really important one. That story that you shared, right? Well, this is really simple. Like, why are you here? Yeah, I guess, yeah. I mean, I, I'm not sure that really a lot of people outside of that community understand that, you know, I think a lot of creativity, a lot of, a lot of, a lot of innovation is in fact, I think the pro almost, almost to a T the process that, that you talk about, like this idea of getting too simple, this idea of getting to, to maybe that's meaning, but um, you know, and, and, and a lot of that is the really hard decisions that you have to make of, of not including certain things you yep. know, to, to be very specific and targeted, I think, whether that's towards an emotion or, or towards a, towards, a, towards, towards uh, a, a message or a theme, or I don't know, it's a, it's a really interesting thing because I've, I've noticed that time and time again, that, you know, I mean, the easiest representation of that, that a lot of people will probably resonate with is the idea of a deck uh, or, or, or a PowerPoint presentation. If yeah. I go all the way back into business, right is I think generally a lot of times people tend to fill up presentations and decks with, with countless amounts of data, countless amounts of, of, sli of slides and information. And, and really, you know, you pull a designer in and they're probably gonna take out 95% of that stuff and really say, what, what are you really trying to say with this? Um, yeah. Because you probably only need this, 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 and this. Um, yeah. But yeah, I don't know. Yeah, absolutely. There's that, there's that famous adage, isn't there? Um, you know when a design is complete when there's nothing not when there's nothing left to add but when there's nothing left to take away yeah you know and, and i remember steve mcqueen apparently was famous the actor steve mcqueen not the director steve mcqueen was famous for he would strip about 50 percent of the scripts away um because he could just communicate something with a look or he didn't even need to speak that guy so um i kind of like that idea that you know, what can I remove, what can, to, and still have it communicate, you know, um, and I think most, most good design is, is that, mm -hmm. um, so I always try and practice that, um, and again, if I look at the projects that didn't work as well, um, thankfully I've not had that many, but there was one a few years ago, and it was an AR thing, and the game was so complicated, and sure enough, when it came to being used on the day at a big air show, people were like, well, this is quite complicated. <laughs> I was <laughs> like, yep, I did say, you know, you just want it to book. Of course, the, the salespeople are like, no, but we need this message and we need this message. And I'm like, these are just people turning up at your stand. They've got 30 seconds. They haven't got the, you know, hey, what, you know, but it, it, sometimes it's half the battle to trying to communicate that to the client that, you know, we should just distill it down to this beautiful thing. Yeah, yeah. I love that. Um, how? I mean, what do you learn? What have you learned about that then? Because 
you know, some people maybe will never just just never get it right. Um, and and I think even if you're talking about the decks in corporate in the corporate world, uh, Josh, you, you know, if you're trying to bring in emotion or importance of design or to focus on the why people sometimes just don't get it they they maybe they're blinkered and they just they're used to what they used to or they just can't see see the vision in the in the mind's eye what well, how have you do you just stay clear of those types of people uh, those types of you know clients or uh, and how have you you know kind of influenced that um to make sure it is still very simple um and effective well, the, the problem is, is that when you get a new client, you don't really know until you start working with them, you know. I mean, sometimes you get an intuition like, you know, Trend Micro are absolutely amazing because they just let me do my stuff. They give me a brief and they maybe have some guiding words or, you know, whatever and what they're trying to communicate. But they they have confidence in me. And I, and I think it's a two-way thing. You have to have confidence in the client as well to be to understand creativity and art and design, you know, so it, there's a lot on them as well. But on the other hand, they know the business that, you know, that or, or what this particular campaign is and what they're trying to get out of it. That's really important as well. So there is compromise, I think, sometimes on both sides. There is, yeah, sometimes there are sometimes clients that just refuse to even see a different point of view you know and really they should be just hiring someone to just push a mouse around you know don't don't speak to me or people like me because you're wasting your money you know just just get someone to just do what you know they can just dictate what it is and and fine but yeah luckily i've managed to avoid that kind of stuff i think Hopefully I do kind of try and get a sense when we first meet, you know, that there's a meeting of minds, I think. Mm, I love that. It, it, it makes me think of, there's a lot of focus um, in the in, in industries right now around um, obviously agility and making sure we understand what the outcome is of what we're doing, um, outcome and the why. Um, but there's a lot of focus on the measurement, right? What is, what are you trying, what is your hypothesis and how are you going to measure it in the short term and long term? And this type of work is often it's, you know, you can't really account for that. It's difficult to measure the emotion um, that people feel and how they remember it for maybe many years and, and how they feel toward even the brand or the product. Um, I don't know if you've got any thoughts around that. Part of me wants to ask you, you know, what was the hypothesis for this, the project you've just talked about uh, and how was it measured um, and how is it still, you know, still out there today? Um, is it still in people's memories? Have they, have they archived it at Airbnb, you know, is it, is it part of their history? You know, I don't know. Um, with that one, I guess there's an amazing picture of the art director from Airbnb and he stood in the middle of the all the stories and it just looks very happy you know because the thing with those kind of installations is they're very transient you know it's that in that case it was a week and but it was a very important week for them um you know and it, and it was successful because i looked at the tweets and the instagrams and people were saying things 
I think there's some on my website that quotes them, but it's, there's one like, this is how you tell a story, you know, and it, there was lots of things like that. And even the Sundance Film Festival tweeted about it. You know, they didn't tweet about everything, um, but they picked up on it to say this was like this amazing installation. Um, so that on those, there isn't any kind of, you know, uh, qualitative data that, you know, suggests all these people saw it and then, you know, then got loads of Airbnbs, you know, you're never going to have that with that kind of stuff. So it is an emotional anecdotal thing. Um, but that, that, that was my job. It wasn't to create any kind of ROI. It was about an experiential thing. Yeah. And as long as it's successful for that week, they did, you know, I gave them all the stories and they're probably sitting on someone's hard drive in, you know, I, they could have made a book out of them or something, you know, yeah. or exhibited them somewhere else. You know, that that's still an option, I think. But obviously they're a massive company and they've got a million things going on. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, but for that time, it was, you know, really successful for them. Yeah, I love it. I love it. I mean, I, I can imagine that it actually did have a longer lasting impact than I think anyone realizes. Um, you know, the work that we do is really focused on looking at touch points along a journey. So, you know, th this one being such an important one in, in a journey, right? It's a touch point that uh, happened. And I think there's several things that the business maybe has done or maybe could do um, to really uh, continue that message or, uh, uh, and the emotion um, to strengthen either their culture inside the company, but also the, you know, the brand aware, uh, brand um, you know, feeling or sentiment um, toward it. So anyhow, you know, I, I think, um, yeah, I don't know, Josh, do you have any, <laughs> you know where I'm going with that? I'm kind of just trying to think, how does that connect back to um, having these, these incredibly uh, visual and emotional touch points with with other things i don't know not sure yeah i i, I just the i know from my from my end i think the question that i'm constantly going back to is i think what you're what you were talking about is you know how do you prove the value of of an emotional experience and it, it's it's an interesting question because yes i think it comes back to even the idea of looking at data versus telling the story of data in in a, in a very interesting way like for instance you know i can i can look at data uh, I can look at the spreadsheet of the numbers where maybe somebody could put together an infographic on that data, or I, I can, I can, I, I can watch your, your installation, your, your piece about how the system protects the creativity, you know, and I, I can look at it in various different ways. And, and I can argue that maybe each has, of course, their own value. Um, but it's, it's a question of like, there is, I think, more important value than I think people realize right now in what you do you know, especially within, within the workplace, like a lot, a lot of what you've done is, is external and you, and, and marketing for businesses and for clients. But I think, especially when you start to talk about culture, start and, and talk about what it likes, to, what it's like to, uh, what it feels like to work at a company, you know, it's interesting to think about how do you continue to prove that value of, of those things inside of businesses for your cultures. And, you know, and, and I go back to art and culture and the importance of the, you know, one to the other. And, but I don't, I don't know. It's an interesting question that I know we're Spencer and I are both going back and forth on. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, well, I, I, I just think culture and art and everything is, it, I don't, I always say, I don't care who you are. I don't care if you're a, a hard headed accountant 
you know, they still go home and watch, you know, a film or a, you know, or they go and see some art or whatever it is. They're not robots, these people. Yeah. So that it's an important thing to remember that they, everyone, they are human beings. You, okay, you can have the odd person who's like, doesn't like music, for instance, at all, you know, those kind of things, but, you know, they're quite rare. Uh, so, you know, that's what I'm tapping into is that shared universality of, you know, a story or, you know, actually being passionate about something, you know, I think, I think it's in all of us and that's what I'm trying to tap into, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think, so we're, we're hitting, I think the end of, of the session. Um, I, I know that, that, you know, obviously you're, I'm sure you're interested about, about a lot of things. And I know you shared with us, um, you know, something that, that not a lot of people know about you. I don't know, Spencer, do you want to, do you want to share that real quick? Yeah, I think you said uh, that you, I mean, so I'm from the UK clearly, and I used to go to some good raves in the nineties as well. Um, but did you uh, play cream and did you have a record yeah, yeah. deal or something? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Tell us about it. Well, I guess it's a similar, you know, kind of ethos to what I do now, really. <laughs> um, I was, you know, I was, I was working in another, a factory at the time. Um, I was about to get married and, but I'd, I'd managed to save up and bought myself a sampler. And so this is like the early, very early nineties. And, um, and I started to, you know, make some music. I'm not a musician, but I can, you know, put things together with sequences and things. Again, you know, a computer making things, I guess is what I'm into, but, and so I made this little demo cassette and there's a, there was a record label in, well, a record shop in Liverpool, just down the road from me, uh, called Three Beats. And I knew that they'd started their own record label as well. So I went in there one Saturday and just, you know, looking through the records. And then I said, oh, could you have a listen to this cassette sometime, you know? And he took it and said, yeah, sure. You know, I'm thinking I'm never gonna hear from them again. And, uh, and then I, I think in the, the next week, I'd come home from work and there was a message to say they'd like to talk to me about putting, you know, some records out. And I thought, oh my, wow, this is, this is amazing. This is the big time, you know, it's all, <laughs> all these thoughts. And, and of course, you know, I, and so we, we did a couple of 12 inch singles. I think I've still got a couple here actually. Um, and yeah, and then I played various clubs, but of course, again, I'm on my own, right? So, um, and I'm going to play Cream, and and you know, of course, it's all fake. You know, there's a, you know the music's you know all on tape, and you're just pretending to play something. So I thought I'm going to look a bit stupid just on my own on the <laughs> stage. So I rang my brother up and I said, and my brother was is younger than me, and he was massively into the rave scene. Like every drug he could take, he would take. Right, so he was hugely into it. And I said, listen, do you want to, um, and he was going to these places as well. He said, do you want to come on stage with me and like play cream and just pretend to play the keyboard? And he goes, yeah. So, <laughs> so we, we, we did that. Um, and, the, and, and, he, and I didn't see him the rest of the night. He just disappeared, you know, after the PA, you know, it was like he was gone. Um, God knows what he was doing. But and weirdly enough, and this, this is a little, you know, epilogue to that. My brother is now a very successful drugs counselor. Wow. <laughs> I'll let you figure out gaps, right? So, so anyway. Uh, so, yeah. And the, the, so I think 
I think we released some some stuff in America, and I remember seeing it in a, I think in Mix Mag magazine, and they had a chart of New York club hits, and mine was like number three, and I was like, oh my god, you know, it's like, but hardly. I think I made about four hundred pounds out of it. <laughs> Did a couple of singles. They had actually a big hit with another um, couple of guys called Oceanic, and that was like almost. I think it was almost number one here. And they actually live in the same town as me. So they put all the money into, you know, them at the time, where I was like this weird kind of, you know, just making these weird records. But yeah, so it was, yeah, it was fun. <laughs> it, was, it was a lot of fun. That's brilliant. I, I love that story. Um, you're going to have to send me the recording. <laughs> yeah, I will. I'll, I think I've got some MP3 somewhere. Brilliant, brilliant. We'll have to make that available for, for our listeners. Um, in fact, one of our future uh, guests uh, is uh, DJ Dolph um, that played at Plural Site Live. Do you remember? Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah, so, you know, I think we're going to be interested just to listen to how he you know, mashes that music up, right, and reads the audience. And there's lots of, lot, lots of things we're looking forward yeah, to definitely. chatting to him about. Um, yeah. So I think, um, yeah, thank you for, for today. I, I've got probably just a couple of last questions um, that relate to the future uh, for you and, and the work that you're doing. Um, let me just go back though on something you said. I love, I love the fact that you called your wife an occasional wife, really. <laughs> <laughs> which, which is brilliant. Um, I'm, I would love to read the stories that she sent you via that printer, by the way. Um, yeah. <laughs> and maybe that is a great way to communicate possibly with my wife or my teenagers uh, to install it. So I want to know where I can buy one um, and install it. It'd be an awesome product to, to, to have. Um, and, uh, but no, I, I think um, I'm interested to know what you're doing like, yeah, in the future. What's, what's not just projects you might be doing, but what, where, where are your interests right now um, where, where we might see something in a couple of years as you, as you develop it? Um, well, there's one thing in the very near future, there's something coming out in December. I can't say what it is, but it's probably in my 24 year career is one of the best things I've ever done. Um, it's a print thing and it involves 100,000 unique images that I made for it. Um, all generative, all coded. Um, you will know the products probably when you see it um, but other than that, I can't really say, but it's, and also it's a friend of mine who runs this thing um, very successfully. I've known him for 20 years. Um, so that, that thing, I can't wait to see that out in the world. And that's going to be December the 1st, that's announced. Um, and then I'm actually on with some Trend Micro stuff right now for a fourth commission from them. Uh, so things are rendering at the moment for that. But otherwise, generally, I've got into the world of crypto art. Um, so, you know, art sold on the blockchain. Um, and I got into it in July after some people I know who run, run one of the platforms in the UK, actually. And they've been on at me for years to join it. And I was like, oh, I don't know. And so I finally did it. And one of the world's biggest collectors of crypto art is called Whale Shark. No one knows who he is. It is a man because it's, I've heard his interviews, but he, he snapped it up in an hour, the first piece I did. And he's then gone on to collect pretty much all my work. And 
and you know they're paying you know it's good money um so that's a kind of focus for me now i've got some there's a there's then these other platforms like nift there's one called nifty gateway um which is a crypto art platform and they do drops every month with different artists so i'm doing mine on the 26th of november you have to be invited to do it but there was a friend of mine well not, i don't really he's not a friend but i is a super famous motion designer and he did his first debut a few weeks ago and he had two pieces and they went for 66,000 each. Wow. Now these are, these are just digital files. You don't get a print. You don't, I mean, you get a digital file and you can put it in your virtual gallery and that kind of thing. So it's crazy and amazing. And, you know, so, that's kind of my, alongside my client stuff, that's kind of like, now the stuff that I can make personally, I can actually sell as well. Because I used to sell prints and stuff, but it, logistically it's hard and, you know, you don't, there's not really much money in it. This one is, is really interesting. Um, so yeah, that's kind of a, a key focus for me, along with learning, you know, AI and those kind of things, bringing that into my work. Uh, so yes, it's, you know, it's, again, it's all new things I haven't really done before, but it's all exciting. That's brilliant. It's been a pleasure to meet with you. Uh, thank you so much for kind of spending your morning with us, uh, just sharing uh, and the insights. We, we really loved it. Well, thank you. And thank you. Thanks, Spencer. Thank you, Josh, for both of you for the brilliant questions. And the, it's been great chatting with you. Yeah, it has. Quick, uh, real quick, Brendan. Um, yeah. yeah, it was amazing. Um, if people want to learn more about you or find out more about you, um, or even you know, I don't know, maybe buy your art on the blockchain. <laughs> I don't know how how can they how can they do that? So, um, BrendanDoors.com is my website. Um, Brendan Doors, all one word. Twitter, Instagram. Um, if you want to see my crypto art stuff, though, I don't really call it crypto art because to me, that's pictures of Bitcoin icons and stuff. I don't, I'm not really into that. But if you go to makersplace.com, uh, that's where I, and known origin is another one. So there's two of the main platforms that I'm on currently. Uh, you can, so you can see my work. I think most of it's sold out. There is a couple of things left. Um, I've not done any work, new stuff until this, this drop on the 26th of November. I wanted to just try and concentrate on it. So I haven't released anything for about four weeks. Well, yeah, so they're, they're the main places. Well, brendandoors.com is my website and pretty much everything's on there and you can jump off from there and fall into a coma if you so wish. So, yeah. <laughs> Fantastic. Feeling yeah. sleepy, I'll definitely put you to sleep. <laughs> Thanks for hanging out with us. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of The Swell Podcast. Be sure to like and subscribe to the podcast, sign up to our newsletter at theswellpod.com and get in on the conversation through all major socials at The Swell Pod. We'll see you next time.